A question asked courageously, answered honestly, and lived authentically can change your whole life. For me, that question was, how can I use what I have, what I love, and what I know to bless the lives of others? The School for Good Living and this podcast are one answer to that question. Hi, I'm Brian Miller. I know that the world can work for everyone, but that it won't until it works for you. I've created this to help you make the difference you were born to make. It's a series of conversations with thought leaders who are moving humanity forward. And in each episode, I explore their lives and the work they do. I also ask them to break down how they've gotten their books written, published, and read. This podcast is all about exploring the magic and mystery, and sometimes the misery, of the creative process. So if you have a mission, a message, and the motivation to share it, this podcast is for you. Welcome to the School for Good Living. Welcome to part two of my talk with my friend and mentor, Marshall Goldsmith. Okay, so that was about, that was fun. That was uh, about rapport. Then I want to ask you about this. How, so with what you do with stakeholder-centered coaching, I love the way that that method of coaching, that that approach creates what, what I've come to call a constellation of accountability. That's right. Like, I love that. But when people work with a coach one-on-one, as so many do, mm-hmm. like a life coach, right? how have you found, without that kind of set of accountability partners baked into a 12 or 18-month process, how, how can coaches or clients successfully create accountability? Well, it's, it's really, to me, a very different process. Mm. I've thought a lot about this, and again, I don't like to judge what anyone else does to start with, but the traditional coaching mode is quite different than what I do. In traditional coaching, you don't give advice, which is, I guess, okay, but the client doesn't ask for advice. In my coaching, all you do is ask for advice. You get advice from the coach. You get advice from stakeholders. You get advice from all kinds of people, right? You're constantly asking for advice. Well, the idea of a traditional coach is the advice comes from the inside. Now, I've thought a lot about this. There's nothing wrong with that. And if you're a life coach, you see, and all you're really trying to do is help the person figure out what they want to do with their life, mm-hmm. it makes a lot of sense because no one from the outside can actually tell you what you want to do with your life anyway. And that needs to, no one can find happiness for you, but you, no one can find meaning for you, but you. So I think the more traditional coaching model is really a life coaching model. Mm. And it's nothing wrong with it. It's not good or bad. It just is. It's different though. It's very different than what I do. And I'm not a life coach. I do life coaching sometimes, but I don't get paid for that. Yeah. I'm not a life coach. I'm, I'm a helping successful leaders achieve positive change in their behavior. From a business point of view, life coaching is a terrible business. It is a disaster business. The median income for someone who defines herself as a life coach is, I think, around 30000 U.S. a year. It's a tough way to make a living. Bag boys make more money. Yeah. The only people that want life coaches are typically unemployed. Well, they don't pay a lot. Yeah. And it's nothing wrong with it, though. If you want to do it and it makes you feel good and you're helping others and you don't need the money, do it. Go for it. Nothing wrong with that. You have to know going into it what it is. So yeah. there's no money in it. Well, and, and what you're saying about this advice, it's interesting to me, and I'm really glad that you brought this up. There's a way in which I don't see it as all that different because even though in, in the stakeholder-centered coaching model, yes, you're you're soliciting a lot of advice. It's ultimately up to you as the client to choose which to accept of course. or reject. So in yeah, a way yeah. that internal guidance is yeah, still, still internal, still right? there. Yeah. No, that's great. And okay. So I just want to stay with that for a moment because what you've said, although you answered it, it didn't, 
it didn't land with me in a way that might be useful okay. <laughs> to to a, a client who is engaging. Well, let me let me shift from that because I suppose maybe what I'm looking for is what you might call a magic move. <laughs> yeah. Well, to me, <clears throat> here's a key. What I do is coaching people about interpersonal relationships, mm-hmm. not just intrapersonal. Right. See, the clients I coach, they've already got an idea of who am I and where am I going. That's not my job. My job is how do you get there? And also, how do you build relationships with those people around you? So if you want to have a better relationship with Mary, to me, the way you, you end up doing that is not for me to sit in a room with you and ask you questions and somehow out of the sky, you're going to come up with a solution to how to have a better relationship with Mary. If you want to have a better relationship with Mary, talk to Mary. Pretty straightforward. Learn from Mary. Yeah. Right. And what's let's say you need to be a better listener. Let's say I'm doing your 360 feedback and feedback indicates you need to be a better listener. Well, that's common advice. Right. Now, I can give you good generic advice on how to be a better listener. Fine. I can ask you questions on how you think you might be a better listener. That's fine. The real key, though, is how do those people around you feel? What do they think you need to do? And the specific issues they have might be quite different than my generic advice or your internal thoughts. So that's why in my process, I really say, why don't you focus on everyone around you? Because they're the people you're trying to improve the relationship with, not me. Yeah. And that makes so much sense, especially where what you talk about, about advertising, the change that you're making, where I think you say something like, in order to be perceived as having made even a 10% change, one must change 100%. Well, here's a key point. Yeah, a couple of points. One, advertising. In my coaching, let me do a quick review of the process. First is you have to agree to get confidential feedback from everyone. It's not a, by the way, this is not a vote. I never argue with my clients. Everything is either required, which is not a vote. If they don't want to do it, it's okay. I just don't work with them. Or it's optional, which means they do it if they want to. Mm-hmm. So since it's either required or optional, there's nothing to debate about here. So I don't have, I don't waste my clients' time. By the way, I don't get paid on time. I get paid on results. The cost to my clients hiring me is their time. Mm-hmm. That's, that's far more valuable than whatever they pay me anyway. The real cost is their time. So here are the rules. First, the requirement. You have to get confidential feedback from everyone around you. Then you and your manager have to agree who are your key stakeholders, or the board does, depends on who I work with. Who are those key stakeholders? You get that confidential feedback. Then you have to pick important areas to improve, and you and the company have to agree they're the right areas. You have to apologize, as you said. You have to come back and say, you know, my name is Jim. I got feedback. Here's what I feel good about. Talk about the positives. Thank people for the positives. Then you say, and here's a couple of things I wanted to get better at. You apologize. Made a mistake. Some things I haven't done as well as I could. Please, no, don't make excuses. Just apologize. Then you say, I can't change the past. Give me ideas for the future. You ask for this feed forward ideas. You listen and you thank people. You don't promise to do everything. You promise to listen, to think about it and do what I can. And you follow up. And then every couple of months you do this follow up, which is, you know, two months ago, I said, I want to be a better listener based on the last two months. Give me ideas for the next two, four months, six months, eight months. And you've seen our research on this. It's called leadership as a context board. I'll send you a copy of it. You can make it available for your listeners, but it always works. It works around the world. We have thousands of people in a database. It's, it's amazingly effective if people do it. Now, back to your comment on changing perception, though. It's much harder to change perception than change behavior. Some people say, do people really change, or are they merely perceived as changing because they do all the follow-up? And the answer is the opposite of what people think. It's easier to change behavior than change perception. One of the best research principles in psychology is called cognitive dissonance theory 
We all view people in a manner that's consistent with our previous stereotype. So I have a stereotype for you that says you're a bad listener. I'm going to look for it till I find it. Let me give you a very simple example to talk about perception change versus behavior change. Let's imagine your problem is you make too many destructive comments about other people. I picked that because it seems so simple. That's easy to fix. Quit doing it. Not so simple. Case study A, you get the feedback. You don't talk to me. I'm your stakeholder. You don't talk to me. You don't do any follow-up. You go seven months and never make one bad destructive comment about anyone. Seven months later, you go, idiots in finance, bean counters, how do we get anything done? I hear you. My reaction is Brian has never changed. Yeah. He has never changed. Case study two, you talk to me. Coworker Marshall, I'm going to be a great team member, not make bad comments, give me ideas. I don't really believe you're going to change, but at least you talk to me. Two months later, though, you come back. It's been two months. Give me ideas. I say, you know, you're doing a great job. Keep it up. Four months. Great job. Six months. Yeah, I didn't think you'd change. You worked hard. Thank you. Seven months. You. I say, you didn't do that for seven months. You say, you're right. I'm going to apologize. Situation A, did behavior change? Yes. Did perception change? No. Situation B, did behavior change? Yes. Did perception change? Yes. In leadership, it doesn't matter what we think we said. In leadership, all that matters is what did they hear? Their perception is their reality. So again, I don't just get paid for behavior change. I get paid for perception change, which is much harder than behavior change. It's actually pretty profound, I think. And it squares with something another teacher of mine once said about the context. And his statement is, the context is decisive. Yeah. And in that, in scenario A, you're not creating a context for the people you work with of you changing. Right. And in B, you are. And that's, yeah, that's powerful. Well, and again, if you look at traditional coaching, one of the problems with traditional coaching, there's no measurement, there's no follow-up, there's no feedback. How do you know it worked? I just feel it. I mean, that's what so many people say, right? Yeah, well, from a life planning point of view, by the way, that's fine. If your goal is that, nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing. On the other hand, if your goal is to help a leader become more effective and change your behavior, not a lot of evidence that it works. That's right. And it involves much more than the leader. It's right. the, the, per, the people the leader leads. And even yeah. if the person did change their behavior, then there's a second question. Did anybody notice? Right. Because yeah. they may put that person back in that same old box. Yeah. So in just, in just a moment, I want to transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Sure. But before I do, I want to be sure to ask you about two things. Okay. One is about time you spent with Tich Nhat Hanh okay. in Plum Village in France, Yes, what it was like, what you learned, you know, that kind of thing. And then the other thing I want to ask you about, one particular experience you had on an airplane, <laughs> but I'll get to that if, okay. if we can talk just for a few minutes about this experience in France. Well, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh is a Buddhist monk, one of the more famous Buddhist monks. And I get to spend a week at Plum Village, France. You've been, you're in my home now, so you've seen I have a beautiful picture of him that I commissioned to have painted. And I, it was a very inspiring experience. It was very rustic. If you ever go there, by the way, don't be macho. Go for the luxury accommodations, which means you're still sleeping on a concrete thing, but at least you have a roof over your head. So <laughs> when they say luxury, <laughs> go for it. It's just, it sounds like the true Buddhist austerity. Oh, this, most people are sleeping on the ground. Yeah. So it's very, very rustic. Everybody washes dishes and pitches in and helps out. He's a very humble guy who lives in a little hut. And every day we just get up and talk about life. And, and one story I always tell is... Uh, one day we talked about anger, and he said, think to a time in your life when you became angry and lost control of your behavior, and we'll see who is responsible. 
So I came up with a case study involving my daughter, Kelly. And uh, Kelly, I'm very proud of. She has a PhD from Yale. She's a professor at Vanderbilt. When she was 14, no, it's not so good. So she was the first girl to acquire a large and brightly colored navel ring. And then she had to get a sleazy outfit to highlight the navel ring. And so daddy comes home and sees this. I start yelling and screaming. And in my monastery with Thich Nhat Hanh, I meditated on it. And he said, now, who is responsible for what happened? And he said, what were you thinking? My first thought was her walking down the street and somebody saying, what a cheap looking kid. I wonder who her father is. My second thought, even worse, my own friends. I'm amazed, Marshall, it's his daughter looked this way. Uh, who is that concerned about here? It's me. Where's the real issue, her navel ring or my ego? My ego. So I learned a lot from him. I would say my coaching is very much influenced by his philosophy of feed forward. Mm -hmm. Another thing I've learned from him is, uh, you know, you don't have to do things. Buddha said, only do what I teach if it works for you. If it doesn't work for you, it's okay. Just don't do it. It's okay. You don't have to judge it or critique it. Well, feed forward is that same concept I learned from him. You ask for idea. You treat it like a gift. You thank people. If you want to do it, you do it. If you don't want to do it, you're not going to do it anyway. It's okay. Yeah. But you don't put people down. You don't argue with people. You don't critique people. You just thank people. And you don't make any false promises. You just say, I'm going to do what I can do. Well, that's such a freeing concept. So I would say a lot of what I do in coaching, I, I did learn from Thich Nhat Hanh, and what a great guy, humble, modest guy, great teacher, I love his books. If you read his books, you feel more at peace just reading the book. By the way, my favorite book of his is called Old Path, White Clouds. Yeah, that's the book when I asked you a few years ago what you were reading, mm -hmm. you told me to read that book. <laughs> Have you read it? And I did. I, did you like it? I did. I didn't know there was so much history about the Buddha and his life. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that it's very well documented. Oh, yeah. And that book, to me, makes you feel at peace just reading the book. Yeah. And it's written like children's bedtime story. Yeah. Which is about right for me. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long book, too. As yeah. I recall, it's like four or 500 pages. It is, but a big type yeah. and pictures. It was, good. It, was good. it was good. Well, and how long ago was that experience that you went to oh, France? I don't even know. 15 years ago, maybe. So long enough to yeah. have had a significant influence on yeah. your coaching. Sure. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And then the other thing that I want to ask about here relates to an experience you had on an airplane where when you finally got back on the ground safely you had a bit more gratitude than I think when you took off. <laughs> yeah, we were flying around on a small plane from LA to Santa Barbara. And I could, very garbled uh, PA system. And there was a stewardess and me, we we're the only two people on the plane. So I couldn't make out what the pilot was saying. The stewardess was asleep. So I literally woke the stewardess up. She goes in, what were you saying? He said, the landing gear is not working. So we went down three times in a row and it didn't work. Wow. Very bad. Then, back in the day, we had to circle around until the plane ran out of gas to land, which I guess if the theory is then you're only going to be lightly toasted rather than charboiled, but you're probably going to die anyway. But we're circling around waiting to run out of gas, which is very distressing. So while we're circling around, you kind of ponder life. And I thought, well, what matters in life? What do I feel good about? What do I regret? And I don't have lots of regrets. I was pretty happy with my life. I thought, well, you know, I've had a good life. You live, you live, you die, you die. I was pretty much at peace. The one thing I wanted to do more of is say thank you to others so, and give gratitude and recognition. And I thought, there's so many people that I've not recognized that I should. And I said, if I ever land this plane, I'm going to try to recognize people. So I have to say, since then, you've probably been around me a lot. I work very hard at that. Yeah. 
saying thank you to a lot of people and trying to give them recognition. And so I worked very, very hard at that. And that was something I learned not from a book, but just more of a gut experiential feel. And then years later, flying to Chicago, same thing. Get those uh, yellow, this is a big plane, but they had the yellow emergency equipment. O'Hare Airport, completely empty, bad sign. Yellow emergency trucks going right by the plane as we land. Very bad sign, you know. You know, but while I'm circling around, what I think, you know what I thought? Hey, what the heck? <laughs> wow. I, I did feel good about recognizing people. If you die, you die. I, I felt good about what I'd done. And so I've had that experience a couple of times. And, and when you're looking at death, it does give you a different perspective. Yeah. Well, and, and I think this was in What Got You Here Won't Get You There, that you talk about that and... uh I think you used the word, that was a humorous, a radical fundamentalist when it comes to gratitude, yeah. <laughs> to expressing gratitude. And, and, you, and you talk about when you got, got down safely and made a, a list of the top 25 people. That's right. And try and, to recognize those 25 yeah. people. So that inspired me, by the way. And I, I want to say this here. I don't know that it'll make it, that'll leave it in the interview okay. when it's edited. But, but I created one of those for you. Well, thank you so much. Because you are undoubtedly one of the top 25 people who've helped me. Have a great life. Well, thank you so yeah. much. It means a lot to me. Well, thank you. It means yeah. a lot to me. Thank and, you so much. And as a, a, an expression of gratitude, I make a Kiva loan uh, uh, on behalf of each of my guests. Yes. And I made a Kiva loan on your behalf to a group of women who are in Rwanda. Oh, how wonderful. Uh, of $1,000 to help them buy more beans and maize that they will use to, to improve the quality of life in their community. That's so wonderful. I, I just wanted to give you that too and thank you leave so you with much. that. So. Thank you for giving Thank me a reason to make so that long. And you know, we're here at my home. You've seen the picture in my library. And the picture in my library is when I was in Africa in 1984 and they had the Great Famine campaign. And, mm -hmm. and the picture is of me kneeling on the ground next to a woman and she's measuring the arms of children. And they only fed people between the ages of two and 16. If you're over 16, you're on your own. Under two, you're going to die anyway. And it shows the woman measuring their arms. If their arms are too little, they're, they're going to die. No food. Arms in the middle, they got food. Arms are too big, they're not hungry enough. I try to look at that picture every day. A little reminder, be, be grateful. So with that, I'm going to transition us to the enlightening lightning round. Okay. If you're okay with that. Okay, so this is a series of 10 questions. Okay. My aim is to ask them briefly. You're welcome to answer as long as you like. Okay. I might jump in a little here and there, but by and large, I'll stay out of the way. Okay. Okay. Question number one. Please complete the following sentence with something other than a box of chocolates. Okay. Life is like a gift. Number two, what is something you are not, which you once were? Intense. Number three, if you were required, and I know this might be a stretch, but if you were required every day for the rest of your life to wear a t-shirt with a slogan on it or a phrase or a saying or a quote or a quip, what would the shirt say? Life is good. Could have seen that coming. <laughs> Number four, what book other than one of your own have you gifted or recommended most often? Old Path, White Clouds by Tick Tuck Tong. Okay. Number five. So obviously being an 11 million miler on United alone. American. I'm sorry, on American. I have only okay. 2 million on United. Uh, only 2 million. Okay. <laughs> so on American. So you travel a ton. What's one travel hack? meaning something you do or something you take with you when you travel to make your travel less painful or more enjoyable. Put the blanket over your head and sleep. 
especially on long flights, the lightweight blanket holds in your body moisture. So what happens is if you don't do that, that dry air goes right to the back of your throat and you probably get a cold or a sore throat. In my job, very bad, very, very bad. By putting the blanket over your head, it holds in the body moisture. You're much less likely to get a sore throat, number one. Number two, no one speaks to you. I did have one funny experience. I was on one plane, a woman woke by and she goes, is he dead? <laughs> <laughs> oh, shoot. Okay, that's... I've by the way, I'm, I'm making a movie now, the Marshall Goldsmith, the documentary. And I talk about that in the movie. It shows me with a blanket over my head. <laughs> what else do you find that... Like, do you have any specific rituals or any requests when you travel? I know some people say, give me a room away from the elevator, you know, on a certain floor, or there's certain foods or exercise, anything. I, I see, I have a gift. I can sleep anywhere. I was brought up between a bar, a gas station, on a highway by a railroad track. I was brought up with constant noise. I can sleep anywhere. I've hitchhiked over 10,000 miles when I was young. I slept on the side of the road. I slept in laundromats. I can sleep any place. I have a funny story. A few months ago, I was working with a client, and they put me up in the Marriott Hotel and apologized. I don't know who they think I am. They said, oh, I'm sorry. I hope you can sleep okay in a Marriott Hotel. I said, look, I've slept under bridges, in laundromats, on the side of the road. I think a Marriott, <laughs> Marriott Hotel is just fine. I can yeah. sleep here. So I, I have a gift. And, and when you sleep, a lot of it is just discipline, too. You just tell yourself, I'm going to sleep. And sleep is it. When you travel as much as I do, sleep is the more important variable of all. If you can't sleep, you die. Yeah. And you've got to be able to sleep. And a lot of sleeping is I put a little thing over my eyes, I close my eyes, and I go to sleep. Again, it's, it's so simple. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you for that. Okay. Number six, what's one thing you've started or stopped doing in order to live or age well? I stopped being a one-on-one -on -one executive coach. I stopped teaching at Dartmouth. I really am selling my home, my big home, where we are now. So I'm actually stopping a lot of things. I've stopped acquiring anything. So I'm pretty much on a no, no new possessions binge toward life. Just, just focus on uh, those are things I've stopped. Okay. Thank you. Number seven, what's one thing you wish every American knew? How lucky we all are. I've been to 102 countries. Unfortunately, most people here have no clue how lucky we are. People here say we have starvation in America. No, we don't. I've seen real starvation. We don't have any of that. If you have real starvation, the garbage can is picked clean. Most Americans have never seen starvation. We've never seen extreme poverty. So we really don't realize how lucky we are and how many blessings that we have. So that's the one thing I'd say. Yeah. I remember as an Asian studies major, I had a class on Chinese history. Yes. And the story, uh, uh, the, the reports during a great famine mm -hmm. of people who died with dirt in their bellies. Oh, yeah. You know, thinking there was some nourishment in that. And it's, yeah, it's hard to imagine yep. that here. But okay. Number eight, what's the most important or useful relationship advice you've ever heard and successfully applied? Now, this can be marital advice or just general Relationship That's advice. what I use over and over. Ask a question. How can I be a better? Mm. How can I be a better leader? How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better father? How can I be a better person? How can I be better? That's a question we don't ask enough. Yeah. Not how can you be better? Yeah. How can I be better? Okay. Number nine. 
So aside from compound interest, what's the most important or useful thing you've ever learned about money or what's something you're sure to always or never do with money? The first thing is I think money will buy one thing that's, that's very important and that's the, you don't need money. To me, the biggest value of money is it eliminates the need for money, which is not a trivial or meaningless thing. The second thing about money is, again, I don't tell people who they want to be. It's just figure out what do you need? And could be a lot, could be a little. It's not my place to judge you. But just figure out what's right for me and then do that. That's exactly the advice about money that my dad gave us growing up. Yeah. Figure out what's sufficient for your needs and then what you'll do with the rest. Right. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us through roughly two-thirds of the interview. Okay. Coming down the stretch, maybe three-quarters, two-thirds. Um, so... The last part here, I just want to turn to an exploration of two things, the creative process and then marketing and promotion. Okay, good. So specifically, I want to start with this question about your working relationship with Mark Ryder. Okay. I've had the privilege of talking with Mark for about 45 minutes. Yeah. And he shared with me how unique and special your relationship as you know, a writing team is. But will you talk a little bit about how do you work together to create New York Times bestsellers consistently? Very hard to do. Well, to start with, we met because of the New Yorker magazine. The New Yorker magazine wrote the story of my life, and it was an 8,000-word story, and it was a very interesting existential moment. I mean, this woman followed me around for two months, and you have no editorial control, and half of them, they just destroy people. So this was not a no-brainer here, and I thought, Peter Drucker taught me this, who's the customer? I thought, well, maybe the customer is my clients, and I said, no, the customer is my unborn great-grandchildren. And I want this to be about me. So after I die, they can read the story and know me. And if I act like someone else or a phony, it's not me. I'm, I'm going to act like me. I told my wife, probably going to lose 150000 bucks or so here, but I don't care. I'm just going to act like me and see what happens. In hindsight, without meaning to, that was the best thing I could have done. In hindsight, what are the odds I'm going to fool this woman with the IQ of 170 from Harvard who does this for a living? Zero. And I tried to fool her or put on some show she'd see through it in about five minutes. So it's a very good strategy, and the story was very positive. Mark Ryder reads the story. He calls me up. He says, uh, well, I've read everything you've written, and none of it was that good. I said, well, no kidding. A woman from the New Yorker magazine can write better than I can. I have a day job. She doesn't. He said, how would you like to write a book? It sounded like that. I said, hey, if you can do it, we'll do it. He's my agent and my co-author. We split all the money 50-50. Everything is split in half. And I talk, he writes, I talk, he writes, edit, talk, write, edit, and then we end up with a book. And we have just a wonderful working relationship. And I'm not ashamed to have a co-writer. I'm happy. He can write better than I can. Well, and for one thing, if there's not a single book, well, this maybe isn't literally true, but books are very collaborative. Even yeah. though for many books, there's only one name on the cover, there's still a whole team oh, yeah. behind any. Yeah. Book. And so um, in his case, we have a great relationship. Funny story, like the book Triggers we did. Mm -hmm. He comes to me and says, I think we should call our next book Triggers. What do you think? I said, it's a stupid idea. He said, how stupid is that? It's is so dumb. I can't even believe you came up with it. It's so stupid. <laughs> That's the dumbest idea I ever heard. He said, well, I just went over to the publisher there and they offered me a $1.2 million advance for a book called Triggers. You know what I said? I love that. Let's go with triggers on that book. He ended up being number one New York Times bestseller. There you go. And a great book. Of all the books I've written, that one is the most positive uh, customer feedback. Yeah. Yeah. People like that book. Yeah, I, I do for sure. So how, 
he told me something like what you're saying. You talk, he writes. He told me about sometimes. He actually does more than that, though. He kind of comes up with ideas and challenges me and and really is a great sounding board beyond just writing. So mm. he's he's been a, just a great partner. Yeah. And yeah. I like him. So we're good friends. It's and a get bonus. Yeah. It's a bonus. He describes something for me where you record your conversations mm-hmm. and then he actually transcribes them. Yes. And that helps him again to hear it maybe more deeply. Yes. To start to organize and things like this. And if I understood right, he said that for for some of your writing, at least, that you'll actually go maybe to an offsite somewhere oh, yes. and yeah. spend a few days at we a stretch. Do. Yeah, we do. So he comes here to San Diego sometimes. Oh. How long does it... So maybe if you're willing, walk me through what's your process from the time you have an idea, like that you settle on triggers or any other concept, and then how does that book become a publication? Well, step one is he and I just talk. And for whatever reason... I don't have any problem coming up with ideas. I mean, I think I come up with ideas for 10 books, you know, anytime, because I'm always coming up with ideas and thinking about things. And, well, you know, I come up with an idea. We run them by him. So, well, that's a good idea. Maybe not a book. And then we'll talk and then finally get something that sounds vaguely like a book. And then we'll start working on a proposal. So I said, okay, well, how is anybody going to buy this? Who would buy it? Why would they buy it? Then we work on putting a proposal together. He writes the proposal. He sells the book to the publishers. And then after that, now we have an agreement and an advance, which is very unusual. A million dollar advance today is just not done. So I'm, you know, I've gotten 550, 650, 1 million, 1.2 million for my books. So it's a lot of advance. And, you know, a story, if they give you $10,000 and the book fails, it's your problem. They give you a million dollars and the book fails. It's their problem. Mm-hmm. They take it a little more seriously when they give you a lot of money. And you've yeah. got more money to advance to put into promoting the book. So yeah, he's great at that. So he's very good. He knows what publishers want and what they're interested in, what people may want. So then we talk and just go over and over with questions, dialogue. And then, as I said, he records everything. He gets it transcribed. Then we go over it kind of again and again. And we spend days. And eventually we end up with a book. Mm. And, you know, we argue every now and again. So he'll want to do something I won't want to do, whatever. But we always end up with good outcomes. And, you know, and we've just got a great uh, great business and friendship relationship. And But, I mean, our book Triggers, for example, last year, I don't know, our royalties were, I think, almost $200,000 last year. It was 11 wow. years after the book came out. Wow. So we're still getting checks 11 years later. I mean, it just keeps going on and on and on. So we have, number one, a great working relationship, but two, a great business relationship. You know, we both made a ton of money and helped each other. Yeah, that's great. And it seems to me like you share a love of sports. I don't know if that's more of him. That's more than him. Yeah. Yeah, He talks about golf. (laughs) I don't play golf at all. Yeah. People sometimes ask me questions about golf because of the book. Yeah. Somebody wanted me a keynote speaker at some golf thing. Like, no, no, no. Yeah. I'm a terrible golfer. So the golf stories are all him. What about the baseball? Is that him too? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because it's it's great. I mean, of course, in business, there's no shortage of war or sports metaphors. Yeah, yeah, that's right. But it makes sense because they can illuminate ah, you know, a funny. point He's so great. well. He's yeah. great. That's awesome. And it, and, and it does come through so strongly as one well voice. he's got one golf story he tells and again when we write our stories we don't use the name of the most of the time we don't use the name of the real people 
which I learned from him is a great vehicle. That way, you don't have to worry about it. Number one, embarrassing people, but number two, you don't have to. You can kind of do a conglomerate of people in a story. So there's one story. It's about him. Is he's playing golf? Asking what's his goal in life? Is he wants to get his handicap down from a, I don't know, a 15 to a 13. I said, look, number one, you're 50 something years old. What percent of all 50 year old people become better athletes? Almost none. Number two, why do you even care? Why don't you just go out and have fun? And he thought. <laughs> That's pretty deep. Why do I care? I get my handicap down from an 18 to a 16. I'm a 51-year-old man. No one cares. He's not going to make the PGA. I'm not going to make the PGA. Who am I impressing yeah. here, right? Yeah. And so why do I go? Why don't I just go out and have fun? So he thought that was very good advice. <laughs> just have fun. <laughs> and my guess is that if he really followed that advice, he probably would lower his handicap. And, and who cares yeah. if he yeah. does or does? Yeah, yeah. totally. Nexus IT helps companies of all sizes manage their information technology with hyper-responsive, white-glove IT support and services to handle the most basic tasks, like monitoring and maintenance, to the more complex projects like digital transformation. Visit their website at nexusitc.net. Okay, so on writing. So anyway, we have a great relationship, and I would highly recommend many people get a co-writer, because... Writing is a different talent. I'm a good writer, by the way. It's not like I'm a bad writer. I've written hundreds of articles and blogs and things like that that are actually professionally good. I'm a professional quality writer. I'm not a literary quality writer. There's two different skills. It's an interesting distinction. Yeah, professional quality is here's a how-to book. Here's the seven ways you do this and that. Like Feed Forward. You read all my articles. Like I wrote those. Feed Forward. Here's how you do it. Or Coaching. Here's how you do it. Those are very good how-to kind of things. And you're not going to write a New York Times bestseller that sounds like that, though. you got to have stories. you got to have interest. you got to have more drama. And that's a different writing style. And by the way, another book I just wrote recently is called How Women Rise with Sally Helgeson. I was the number two author on that one. She wrote that book, too. She's a great writer. Same thing, though. We dialogue, talk. She writes. Dialogue, talk. She writes. I edit. And, you know, again, same thing. That book was a little different, though, because it's probably about mm, 75% of the content came from her, mm. and maybe 25% came from me. When you're writing or going back and forth with Mark on ideas, mm. how aware are you in those moments of your audience, of your reader? Not too much. So when you write, who are you primarily writing for, or how do you think of that? I'm just thinking about life. Yeah. And so like right now, McKenna is here, who you met her, and mm. she's 21. Mm-hmm. And she works with me, and I'm asking her questions about life because I want to get a 21-year-old perspective. I'm not 21. And she talked about her and her friends and their experiences. So I like to talk to people. I mean, if you have some time today, I'd love to talk to you. Just about the people you're around, people your age, the dramas they have in their lives, because you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. And I, I, in that sense, I do try to think of my readers because they are a wide range of ages, They are typically managers, professionals, entrepreneurs, people that buy business books, typically educated. And again, that's not by choice. It just, it is. Mm -hmm. And and so that is pretty much who my audience is. And yeah, my goal is just help people have a better life. As I've grown older, my level of aspiration has gone down and down and down. My level of impact has gone up and up and up. Why? I quit worrying about what I'm not going to change. So my goal is real simple, like this, making this with you. Maybe one person has a better life because they heard this. Guess what? It's a winner to me. How about you? That's a beautiful perspective for me too. One person sends one email and says, my life's a little better because you did this. 
it was a good investment. Yeah. Well, and and my life is better. In my life, yeah. You know, yeah you, everybody you, went in here. Yeah. I think we get lost in the search for perfection. I, I know I do. <laughs> and yeah, everything has to be perfect, and you have to be ashamed if it's not perfect. And somebody didn't like Detail 54. You know, well, you know, I've got research from thousands of people. All the stuff I teach, it works if you do it. It's very hard to do it. And by the way, when, one thing we didn't talk about that is my friend Alan Mulally and I are writing a new book together, too, called Stakeholder-Centered Leadership. And you've heard him speak. His leadership process is unbelievable. He's probably the best leader of this century. Most people can't do it. They can't do it. Why? It just takes incredible courage. It takes discipline. It takes humility. His, his process of leadership, we're, it's just like my coaching process, the same principles. You have an accountability group. You get feedback. You have ongoing weekly dialogue. You check every day, and then you add it up and report it at the end of the week. It's exactly the same stuff I teach. That's why we get along so well. Most people that try my daily question process quit within two weeks. It's hard. Did you ever try it? I do it. You do it. I it's do. not easy, though. I, I do do it, and I was reminded as I was preparing for this interview that even you talk about the difference between keeping a diary, you know, recording on your own, and answering the questions to someone else at the end of the night. Yeah. But I, I do it in an Excel spreadsheet and I don't hit every night. Yeah. But most nights, maybe that's good. 80%. Oh, that's good. And that, in fact, let's talk about that for just a moment because I think this is something that if people are willing to look in the mirror, you know, yeah. to be honest about what are these areas of their life that could make a difference for them. And then in many of them are binary. Yeah. Either you did or you didn't. Yeah, exactly. You know? Will you talk about what is the daily question process and why might someone want to do it? Okay, first, the daily question process, what do you think? Three to five minutes a day? If that. If that. Yeah. yeah it takes three to five minutes a day, if that. It costs nothing. Help you get better in almost anything. Now, some people are skeptical. Three to five minutes a day costs nothing. Help me get better in almost anything. It sounds too good to be true. As you know, about half the people quit in two weeks. It's, you do this every day. You learn life's real easy to talk and hard to live. How does it work? Get out a spreadsheet. On one column, write down a series of questions that represent what's most important in your life, friends, family, coworkers, etc. Every question has to be answered with a yes or no or a number. Yes is recorded as a one, no is a zero, or a number, such as how many push-ups or how much do you weigh. Seven boxes across, one for every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Fill it out every day, and at the end of the week, the spreadsheet gives you a report card. And again, I'm going to warn you in advance that picture at the end of the week is not as pretty as that corporate values plaque you see stuck up on a wall. I mean, I've been doing this for years. It's very humbling to do this. It's very humbling for me. I'll speak for myself. A very humbling experience. And I have a person call me every day, Jasmine. She calls me every day. And every day we go through this. And every day she talks about my questions. And, you know, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing. And again, I'm too cowardly and undisciplined to do this by myself. I wrote the book. That doesn't mean it's easy for me to do. Yeah, and you wrote the questions. <laughs> I wrote the questions. Yeah. I write the, my own questions. It's like one of my questions every day is how many times you try to prove you're right when it wasn't worth it. I, I'm not seeing too many zeros on that scorecard. Kind of hard for that old professor not to be right all the time. Uh, how about you, that young coach? You ever try to be right a little too much? <laughs> <laughs> on, I've been known to do that on occasion. Yeah. How many angry or destructive comments did you make about people yesterday? Yeah, I don't see enough zeros on that scorecard either. I don't yeah. always do so good on that. And, yeah. you know, just say or do something nice for your wife, your son, just questions about life. Again, I'll give you an article about it. You can send to everyone. If you want all my questions, you can have all mine. Just But the key is you write your own. Yeah. 
Yeah, key is not my questions. The key is your questions. You're right, your own questions. You get this is designed to help you get better at what you want. If you want to get better, how to measure it? Yeah. Now back to the extreme example of this. My friend Alan, his process that he implemented at Ford, stock was at one dollar and went to eighteen dollars and forty cents. That's amazing. I think they were on track to lose seventeen billion. They were losing seventeen billion he, when he started. He started amazing turnaround. It's incredible. On the other end, I hate to say it, when he when he left Ford, people quit doing it. It's hard. Yeah. Every week in Alan's coaching process, you have to say, my name is, my priorities are red, yellow, green. Here's my plans for today. Here's my plans for five years for today. It's like a public performance appraisal every week in front of not only your 16 peers, but 32 observers. Yeah, that, that transparency. Well, as you mentioned, the courage, you know, the transparency, the accountability. Humility. The humility. There's, there's so much in that. And, and oh, it I, works. Yeah. It'll well, work. I've, I've experienced that because I've done it consistently since I learned it from you three years ago. And as I said, I'm not a hundred percent, but I'm in answering the questions. I'm probably high nineties. That's good. And I've seen, you know, of course, I think this is to be expected for anyone that does it over a, a period. The questions change. Yeah, I, I change the questions. Yes. For me, one of them is how many minutes did I read? Yeah. You know, did I show my wife love in a way she likes to receive love? You know, is one. Did I tell my kids I love them? Yeah. You know, that was that was one. But one thing I thought was interesting in a discussion, I don't remember if it was in the stakeholder center coaching training or in the book, but I think you wrote the questions, did I do my best to? I do. And my first six questions I want to share with everyone. I highly recommend these six. Number one, did I do my best to set clear goals? Number two, did I do my best to make progress toward achieving my goals? Number three, did I do my best to find meaning? Number four, did I do my best to be happy? Number five, did I do my best to build positive relationships? And number six, did I do my best to be fully engaged? Now, our research on this is amazing. Why does that work? Well, the typical employee engagement question is, do you have clear goals? Do you have a friend? Well, if you ask, my, my daughter Kelly taught me this. You ask a person a question that's called a passive question. If they have a negative answer, they blame the environment. Do you have clear goals? No, no, they're confused. Do you have a friend at work? No, they're jerks. On the other hand, if you ask, did I do my best? There's no excuse. You have to take responsibility. And doesn't even say you succeeded. Did you even yeah. try? Yeah. Well, it's hard. Because the hardest question you could possibly ask yourself every day has four qualities. Number one, you write the question. Well, you can't blame the idiot that wrote the question. You wrote it. Number two, you know the answer. You know how to do it. You can't use the excuse you don't know how. Number three, you know it's important. And number four, did you try? Did you do your best? Now, why is that question hard? Nobody to blame. It's so much more fun blaming everybody else for our problems. And it's, let's talk about them and what they need to do wrong. I don't know about you, but I've been doing this now for 25 years. I've learned one thing. I've learned that about 99% of the time, I don't have to look real far to find the source of almost all of my problems. All I have to do is look in the mirror. Did you ever have that same feeling? <laughs> I can say I have. Yeah, where are that problems coming from? It's not out there. No, no, no. Where are my, yeah, you know, where where are my problems coming from? Frank, come with that guy in the mirror. Yeah, you know, that the big source of my problems is not them; it's me. Yeah. Well, and and speaking of massive learnings that you've had in the last few years, another one that I remember hearing you say something about was about this idea that we could all use help. We all need help. Will you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, I. To start with, the, there was no field of coaching. One thing I'm very proud of in my book, Triggers, 27 major CEOs endorsed that book. Now, why am I so proud? 30 years ago, no CEO would admit to having a coach. They would have been ashamed or embarrassed to have a coach. Well, today it's okay. 
And we all need help. I need help. That's why I have someone call me on the phone every day. I need help. My name is Marshall Goldsmith. I'm too cowardly and undisciplined to do these things by myself. I need help. And it's okay. Once we get over that silly, macho, I can do everything on my own nonsense and realize, hey, we all need help and it's okay. How many of the top 10 tennis players have a coach? 10. Yeah. They usually and probably have multiple. Multiple coaches. Yeah. Why? They're smart enough to know they need help. Yeah. Well, Twyla Tharp, the world's greatest choreographer, one of the best dancers in history, same personal trainer for 27 years. Personal trainer is not teaching her something new after 27 years, just making sure she does this stuff. Mm -hmm. See, what we do is, again, we think, I understand it, I'm going to do it, mm -hmm. and we're ashamed. Uh, the book, The Checklist Manifesto, doctor goes in for surgery, the nurse asks the doctor a series of questions from a checklist before the surgery. The eyes on unneeded infection plummet, the death rate's cut by two-thirds. It's just like the daily question process. It works. Yeah. The huge majority of hospitals don't allow the nurse to ask the doctor the question why the doctor's ego is too big. They're ashamed to admit they need help. According to Dr. Gwandi, more people have died because of the egos of surgeons and died in the Vietnam War, the Afghan War, and the Iraqi War put together. Wow. Why? Ego. They're ashamed to admit they need structure, and they're ashamed to admit they need help. We all need structure, and we all need help. Back to my new book, The Earned Life, I'm going to talk about choice. One of the problems with choice is you don't have structure. Well, if nobody on the outside's giving you structure, you got to get it from someplace. Mm -hmm. If you think that you have enough willpower to do everything on your own by yourself, you are very highly probably delusional. I'm, I don't have that kind of willpower, nor do I know too many people that do. We all need help. Yeah. And once we admit that, it's so much better. Yeah, that's... That was that was powerful when I heard you you share that and and obviously that's something that's not just a concept for you but both receiving help you know asking for it receiving it but also giving it to others yeah it's really it's really yeah. something I admire so thank you well, thank you and if my clients didn't need help they wouldn't hire me yeah yeah <laughs> for sure and the other thing is any of my clients that would say I'm not going to tell anyone I have a coach I would not work with no if you're ashamed to have a coach I'm not going to work with you that's a terrible message. Yeah. The opposite is a much better message. Hey, I, I get feedback from everyone. I have a coach. I'm trying to improve. One of the great leaders you met is Hubert Julie, who did this spectacular job of turning around Best Buy, was ranked number two CEO in the United States last year. And, you know, Hubert has got everyone at Best Buy trained to do this. You could go to any employee and say, what do you want to improve? My name is Jim. I want to be better at it. Please give me ideas. Hmm. Everyone is trained to do that. That's awesome. That's wonderful. Yeah. So with our last few minutes, I just want to ask a few questions sure. about marketing and promotions. Good, good, good. I um, like that. Yeah. So in a, in a session where we were together, the notes I took at least had you saying, if I were to give you, and I realize this is coming without context sure. <laughs> for the listener, but if I were to give you only three words, they would be build your brand. Exactly. Will you talk more about Why is that important? Well, all right, let's talk about you. Okay. And we'll talk about our 100 Coaches Project. My mission in that project is to give things to people who can give things to others. The best thing you can do to help me achieve my goal is to build your brand. That Why? makes sense. Other people will listen to you. Yeah. If you don't have a brand, no one's going to listen to you. Yeah. Well, the best way I can leverage my help for you is for you to use that help to help others. And the best way you can do that is to build a great brand. 
I mean, I have a lot of negatives and a lot of flaws, but building a brand is not one of my problems. I'm very good at that. I mean, do a survey. Who's the number one executive coach in the world for years? Me. Who was second? Well, it's a little, <laughs> not a clear second there, but it's clear who was first, right? Yeah. I won. Well, I've got a very good brand. I mean, I'll give you an example. Global Gurus. They did this ranking of coaches. I call them up. I tell them, take my name off the list. I no longer want to be ranked. I'm not doing one-on-one coaching. Take my, they take my name off. Fine. A week, I see my name is gone. The next week, they have a new category called Guru of Gurus category. <laughs> <laughs> they got me up in a special cloud somewhere. <laughs> well, you know why? I'm sure they got emails saying, this is a ridiculous list. Why in this case not even on the list? What a stupid list. They, they had to fix it. Hmm. That's well, funny. Yeah, now they have me in the special above guru category. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's building a brand. Yeah. All right. Why are you interviewing me? Because I have a brand. Why do my clients talk to me? Because I have a brand. I mean, I'm a good guy and I work hard. I've got a lot of positive qualities, internal and external validation. Internal validation is I want to do a good job because it makes me feel like a good person and I'm proud of myself. You know, I want to do a good job because of that. I want to build a brand because it's external validation helps me do that. And without a brand, my ability to do that is severely limited, severely limited. So I always tell people, build a brand. Couple of suggestions on how. Number one, you need to have an identity. My identity is very simple. My mission is to be the world's authority in helping successful leaders achieve positive long-term change in behavior. Do a Google search. Helping successful leaders, in quotes, the first 500 hits, 450 are me, the entire world is 50. I want. My brand, I want. Who's second? Nobody close. Nobody close. I've got 100 to 1 over anybody who's second. Why? I had a clear brand, a clear mission, a clear identity. I say who I am and who I'm not, like the other kind of coaching you mentioned. I don't knock it. It can be great for life planning. Mm -hmm. I don't do it. I don't do strategy. I don't do getting organized. It's not that they're unimportant. They're critically important. I don't do it. Somebody once asked me a question, and I said, Oh, I'm not an expert on the topic. And the person said, well, don't you think it's important? I said, it's critically important. They said, well, why don't you have an expert? I said, because I, it's really important to be a foot surgeon. But if you come to me with a brain tumor, I don't think I should be giving you advice. Well, you got to know who you are. Yeah. I'm not an expert on the topic you're asking the question about. And it's an important question and a very good question for somebody. I'm not an expert. Stick to what you know. I'm an expert on something. So I have worked incredibly hard to build a brand. Now, building a brand for all your listeners is hard. Nobody's going to pat you on the head. Nobody's going to say, wonderful job. You get paid absolutely zero for it. And it's a lot of work and effort. On the other hand, you can't start any younger. Yeah. You're going to do it, do it. So like social media, it's very hard to get from zero to 1,000 followers. Very hard. I have 1,000 new followers every week or two. Well, I've got 1.3 million followers. Inertia, I get 1,000 followers every week or two. Well, I have a brand. Now, you might say, well, easy for you. No, it's not easy for me. I made 300 videos to, to do that. I did a lot of years of work for no pay, for nobody saying, patting me on the head. But you've got to start sometime. And what most people do is they want to skip ahead from zero to at the top and take some shortcut. If there is a shortcut, I really can't help tell you what it is because I didn't take it. I seem to have taken the long cut myself. So I'm not sure there is a shortcut. You just have to pay the price. Like this interview, it's you building a brand. Yeah. You're not getting paid for this. I'm not getting paid for this. Right. We're building a brand. Yeah. 
Well, and, and, and what you said about in the time, that same session we were together, again, my notes were, there is no short-term payoff for building a brand. No. You have to be willing to make the investment. Exactly. Yeah. It's all long-term investment. Yeah. Yeah. Which is, is really interesting. And for me, for anybody who knows me, this is no surprise, but this, this part of the conversation can become, for me, very philosophical. Yeah. And what I mean by that is, the more I learn about myself and the more I learn about life, it sounds cliche, but it's true. The more I know, I don't know. Exactly. Right. And so when I learn about myself, one of the things I've come to believe is anything I could ever use to describe who I am is not who I am. Right. Right. Anything. So then at that point, what that creates is both a freedom and a fear in a way of choosing a label, not to be a derogatory term. Right. But it, then I'm very aware that it's not true. Right. It's in whatever reality is, yeah. but I'll, I'll give you the give example. Me a different word. I wouldn't say it's not true. I would say it's not complete. Okay. It probably is true. It's not yeah. complete. Yes. That's see my identity is I try to help successful people achieve positive long-term change of behavior. That is clearly true. Right. That's not entirely who I am. Sure. That, yet that's my brand. So yeah. I'm giving some wording to help you. Yeah. Thank you. It is true. If you say it's not true, you're going to feel bad about doing it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's so, and this idea that you talk about, about being the world's expert at mm -hmm. fill in the blank. Yeah. And, and I love the question you ask. And at the same time, I'm intimidated by the question, which is if you're not the world's leading expert on a given topic, why are you speaking? <laughs> right. Which is a great question. And for people who are starting out perhaps, or maybe they're in the field of life coaching or very competitive industry. Right. That I think part of the answer to that question can be. You're speaking to figure out who you are. It's You're speaking to figure out what's your voice, what's your message, yeah, who yeah. are you, Yeah. right? And I remember when I was in, I was in, I remember being in Washington, D.C., and, mm -hmm. and I, I, it was for one of the MG100 events. Yes. And I took your advice and I went back to my hotel and I, I like to travel with the dry erase marker. Yeah. And I'll sometimes write on the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I wrote, I am the world's leading expert at blank. And for the three days I was there, I didn't fill in the blank <laughs> because it felt so in the moment I felt it would be a lie. It could be aspirational. Well, aspirationally say, true. I'm going to be the world's expert right. at blank then. Yeah. And it's very, very intimidating, but also very useful. But I don't know again that there's a magic, like there's a magic wand or a silver bullet for this, but how does one choose? How did you choose? Well, again, don't feel locked in. So here's the advice I give people. Pick a path. Pick a path. You've got all the data today you're going to get today. Pick a path. And you say, this is the path for today I'm going to choose. And you don't have to say, I am the world's expert. Say, I'm going to be the world's expert at. You start going down that path. Now, when you go down that path, maybe you want to make a detour. Okay. Hey, I used to want to be the world's expert at helping large organizations develop customized 360-degree feedback. Well, guess what? I was. Then I thought, well, that's nice, but that field is kind of going nowhere. It's going to be, you know, all automatic, and I prefer something else. Mm -hmm. So I changed my path. Going down a path, though, helps you, because that path helped me with my other path. It led to my other path. To me, go someplace. Don't just drift around. And if you have a path, you learn about achievement on a path. You can change the path, but you're still learning about achievement on a path. So one idea I have is have a path, pick a path. You don't have to live with it for eternity, but at least you're going someplace. You're not going no place. 
Number two is, and this is something you've been good at, meet parallel experts. Mm-hmm. I'm a parallel expert. I'm not threatening to you. I'm not your enemy. You've met a lot of other people in the 100 coaches. They're not your enemies. Meet people who are traveling down other paths you can learn from. Learn how they're doing their job. Whitney, what's she doing right? Obviously, some of these, Son Yen, these people are doing something right. I was at the Thinker's 50. I saw a lot of them get awards here. So, you know, they're doing a lot right. What can you learn from these people? What can you learn from Alan, from Jim Kim? They're not threatening. You're not their enemy. They're friends. Yeah. So how can you pick people to help you? Then you go down that path and you say, I'm going to meet fellow travelers in life, and they can help me, and I can help them. The win-win. And then you just say, just keep going down the path, going down the path. The only coach I have for you is you worry too much. Quit worrying so much. You're talking to me? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know me three years, you know everything about me. Quit worrying so much. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, I think... What, what's left to say? I, I do want to ask this. I love, I I've love... always got my final advice. So I, I, before we wrap up, I need to do that. Okay, we'll do that. And we'll also do this question in your opinion. What are the qualities of a great sentence and how can we write more of them? Answer is not an expert. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. You practice what I preach. If I could answer that, my name would be Mark Ryder, not Marshall Goldsmith. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting, by the way, that Paul, going back to the earlier part of the conversation, is the one that gave you the $1,000 a day opportunity. But then later, I recall you saying he was the one that gave you advice to do more than running around charging days. Well, that's what happened. He gave me this advice. I was very successful. Then he said, you're making too much money. And he said, you're not going to be who you could be. You're just running around selling days. You're not building your brand. You're not writing, you're not thinking, you're just selling days, and you're good at it, and your clients are happy, that's it. You're never going to be who you could be. And for 10 or 12 years, I really did not listen to him adequately. But finally, I met Francis Hesselbein and other Peter Drucker and other great people, and they really helped me to build my brand and become more. Yet, he tried. And sometimes you just don't listen to good advice when you get it, or maybe wrong period of time, who knows. But anyway, that was good advice. And the challenge there was comfort. It's hard to change when you're comfortable. I experienced that because my life is so comfortable. That's right. Well, and by the way, your listeners, in many ways, the listener that's kind of desperate may be the first one to implement this advice. The listener that's the most comfortable will be saying, well, I don't need to do that. I'm making money. I'm pretty successful. Well, don't think that way. I'm in a group that has been meeting for 25 years. When that group began, from a socioeconomic point of view, I was kind of in the middle. Now I'd be kind of at the top. Six people went bankrupt from that group. And they were all very distinguished people. Hmm. They were very good at what they were doing. What happened, though, is they read their own press clippings, and they quit trying to reinvent themselves. And the show ran out. Hmm. Garth Brooks, the marquee misspelled his name, and not too many people came. It happens. It happens, and you know, it's not like this stops. This building your brand, I build my brand that I don't have to do it anymore. It doesn't actually work that way. Yeah, success is never final. I mean, Jim Collins is a great guy, great book. Thinker's 50 this year, he was number 41. Hmm. It goes up and it comes down. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, I do want to include this as well. If people want to connect with you or they want to learn from you, 
what would you have them do? Well, send me an email, marshall at marshallgoldsmith.com. If there's anything you have a question about, whatever, just ask. I can't promise to get back to you immediately. I always get back to people eventually. Go to my website, www.marshallgoldsmith.com. I have, uh, I think, 300 videos online, hundreds of articles. It's all free. Copy, share, download, duplicate, use whatever you want, any way you want. Sometimes, like today, somebody sent me a note from New York. They needed permission. I mean, it says it's all free on the website, but anyway, I'll I'll write. If you need permission, I'm happy to send you a note so you have my permission to do this stuff. Sometimes people do for whatever. It's fine for whatever reason. So feel free to use my stuff in any way. YouTube, I've got hundreds of videos on YouTube. And then if you're interested in 100 coaches, again, you have to realize there are... Your odds are not great, but if you're interested, give it a shot. You know, send me an email, marshall at marshallgoldsmith.com. You say, here's my name. Here's my biography. Here's why I'd like to be in this organization. Here's how I'm going to help others. You never know. No downside. Yeah. Yeah. And also people can visit mg100.org to learn more. Yeah. And also talk to this guy over here. Talk to Brian because he's the one needs to be adopting people anyway. So talk to him and make the pitch to him. Awesome. Okay. Well, Marshall, we've covered everything and more that Except I had my final to. advice. That's right. So I want to be sure we get that. Are we ready? Okay. Final advice. The best coaching advice you're ever going to get. Take a deep breath. Imagine you're 95 years old. You're just getting ready to die. You're on the deathbed. Right before you take the last breath, you're given a beautiful gift. The ability to go back in time and talk to the person that's listening to me today. The ability to help this person be a better leader, better coach, much more important, to have a better life. What advice would the wise 95-year-old you, who knows what really mattered in life and what didn't and what was important and what wasn't, what advice would that wise old person have for the you that's listening to me right now? You don't have to say anything or do anything or write anything. Just answer that question in your mind. Whatever you're thinking now, do that. In terms of performance appraisal, that's the only one that matters. That old person says you did the right thing, you did the right thing. That old person says you made a mistake, you made a mistake. You do not have to impress anyone but that old person. Some friends of mine interviewed old folks who were dying, got to ask this question, what advice would you have? On a personal side, three themes. Theme number one, three words, be happy now. As we discussed, not next week, not next month, not next year, that great Western disease. I will be happy when I get the money, status, BMW. Don't get so busy chasing what you do not have that you cannot see what you do have. Common comment from old people, I got so busy chasing what I didn't have, I couldn't see what I did have when I had just about everything. Number two, friends and family. I'm sure your companies are very nice and important. When you look around the deathbed, none of your coworkers are waving goodbye. Friends and family, the people that matter. Number three, if you have a dream, go for it. Because you don't go for it when you're 25. You probably won't when you're 85. It doesn't have to be a big one. Maybe go to New Zealand or speak Spanish, play a guitar. Old people that try to achieve our dreams are always happier than those that didn't. None of us are going to achieve all our dreams. The question is, did you at least try? Business advice isn't much different. Number one, life is short. Have fun. Number two, do whatever you can do to help people. And number three, Go for it. The world's changing. Your industry's changing. Do what you think is right. You may not win. At least you tried. Old people, we never regret the risk we take and fail. We always regret the risk we fail to take. And finally, it's my honor to be able to talk to everyone today. I know many of you are in entrepreneurial positions where you're creating organizations. Maybe you're a manager where you're influencing people. Maybe you're a coach 
So again, my hope is maybe help you have a little better life, and then even better, maybe you can help someone else have a little better life. So thank you very much for this kind invitation. Thank you, Marshall. And thank you to everyone who's listening. I'm so glad that you joined us. It's my hope that you take some of what you've learned here and share it with others in ways that you enjoy and that benefit you and that benefit others. So until next time, take care. Despite living in an age where we have more comforts and conveniences than ever before, life isn't working for many people. Whether it's in the developed world, where we're dealing with depression, anxiety, addiction, divorce, jobs we hate, relationships that don't work, or people in the developing world who don't have access to clean water or sanitation or healthcare or education, or who live in conflict zones, there's a lot of people on the planet that life isn't working very well for. If you're one of those people, I invite you to connect with me at goodliving.com. I've created Life's Best Practices Breakthrough Coaching to help you navigate the transitions that we all go through. Whether you've just graduated school, you're going through a divorce, you just got married, you're headed into retirement, you're starting a business, you just lost your job, whatever it is you're facing, I've developed a 36-week course that you go through with me and a community of achievers and seekers who are committed to improving their own lives and the lives of others. So through this online program, you will have the opportunity to go deep into every area of your life, explore life's big questions, create answers for yourself in community, get clarity and accountability. If that's something you're interested to learn about, I invite you to contact me directly at brian at briamiller.com or by visiting goodliving.com. 